the Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome, Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Uh, I'm very lucky uh, to be a partner with the ACCP Critical Care PRN. I'm excited for all that the partnership will offer uh, June 1st. Uh, the partnership became official. I'm excited for the opportunities to uh, collaborate, I think highlight the awesome things the PRN is doing, and ultimately work together to advance the work of critical care pharmacists, right? So be on the lookout, exciting things on the horizon. So that's great. The 2023 Pharmacy to Dose Awards, right? Nominations are open. Be thinking, right? Doesn't get any easier. Nine categories, no CVs, you don't need eight references, uh, and title belts as trophies, right? Link in the episode description to submit a nomination. They close June 23rd. What are you waiting for? Nominate today. Now, this is part two of a two-part series on perioperative emergencies, and I am so lucky to be joined by four leaders in the perioperative pharmacy space, Sarah Highland. Eric Johnson, Garang Patel, and Rachel Wolf. So if you haven't yet, be sure to listen to part one, right? A great overview on their experience in this space, as well as discussing the management of cardiac arrests in the OR and some evidence-based uses and review of Sigamidex. So part two leads off with discussion on LAST, or local anesthetic systemic toxicity, then shifts to reviewing dantrolene and clinical pearls to keep in mind when administering this medication for the treatment of malignant hyperthermia. And then the episode closes with a roundtable discussion with advice and a look into the future of perioperative clinical pharmacy. So part two, perioperative emergencies, starting right now. So in case we forgot who is on the panel, right here with four clinical pharmacists who are well-known, well-researched, and just all-around awesome in the perioperative pharmacy space. So this is just a brief intro, right? Part one, uh, each guest goes a little bit more into their role and background. Uh, so Sarah Highland is a perioperative and emergency medicine clinical pharmacist at Ohio Health Grant Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio, and she's on Twitter at Sarah J. PharmD. Now, Eric Johnson is the perioperative critical care pharmacist at UK Healthcare in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can find him on Twitter at GoBig303. Garang Patel is the Director of Clinical Pharmacy Services at the University of Chicago Medicine in Chicago, Illinois. And Rachel Wolf is the Perioperative Clinical Pharmacy Specialist Supervisor at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. And you can find her on Twitter at Rachel C. Wolf, Wolf with an E at the end. 
So uh, thanks so much to all four panelists for uh, joining me today and excited to lead off the discussion with some insight into the management of local anesthetic systemic toxicity or LAST. And we'll talk about something, right, LAST that you all hit on, right, that's kind of that unique thing that you might see in the OR that could be contributing to that cardiac arrest. Now, LAST or local anesthetic systemic toxicity. Now, um, Rachel, anecdotally or, or based on any literature that might be out there, is are we seeing an increased rate of LAST? Yeah, Nick, I absolutely, I think we really are. Anecdotally, at least at our institution, um, we are seeming to hear a lot more about these events. I think in um, in retrospect, I feel it's a little bit related to perhaps expanded use of regional anesthesia techniques as we're all trying to strive for multimodal analgesia, block different, um, different nerves to provide pain relief for our patients. Most often that is now done under ultrasound guidance, but that's a a caveat of safety to where our anesthesia clinicians um, are more, um, I guess, aware of where they're actually injecting that local anesthetic and decreasing the direct intravascular accidental administration. Um, But then I think possibly maybe even more so culprit of our increased mass at our our institution is related to our low-dose lidocaine infusions for pain that are frequently utilized both in and outside of the OR space and possibly even more outside of the OR space and even in the ED and our primarily ED and ICU patients. Um, and that's mostly related to that we end up treating really, really sick patients that may not be clearing the drug as quickly um, as, we, as we intend they would in the, if they were to be a healthy individual. And then also that I think we do push the envelope related to the duration in, of the therapy itself. So typically, we really wouldn't want the infusion to continue longer than 24, 36 hours, but that consistently uh, we do push that out as our patients still have significant pain. And uh, sometimes we, we try to reduce the amount of opioids that we rely on utilizing. So we do oftentimes use lidocaine um, for those for those particular patients. So, so yeah, so we, we certainly have, have seen a lot more incidences recently. Um, and, and then the other thing to just be maybe we're also, be, by being involved, we're hearing about those events yep. even more so when they occur. So they're being reported more frequently when perioperative pharmacists are uh, involved. That's a really great point. It's kind of like the, the, the uh, medication error aspect, right? If you're not there, you don't know about it. It's hard to say if it's an increase or are you just seeing it more. So that's a a really good point. Now, there's a when we think of last, right? There's a local anesthetic dose, and the, the concept is if you cross that threshold, right, your risk for experiencing this greatly increases. So, Sarah, for some of the the most common local anesthetics, things that people might be familiar with, what are what are some of those doses that people could kind of keep in the in the back of their minds? Yeah, this is an important question because I think the ideal situation is, you know, the clinical pharmacist is consulted on the front end with the anesthesia and our surgical providers as appropriate to help mitigate last from happening in the first place, right? Especially as as Rachel pointed out, as we start to use all of these different agents from different angles, maybe different providers, different routes of administration, and the cumulative risk starts to really compound. The The challenging part here is we really don't know what a, the safe maximum 
bum doses. <laughs> there's, there's zero randomized controlled trials here. <laughs> the guidelines and advisories available to us are literally based on case theories and animal studies. So answering this question succinctly is, is pretty impossible, <laughs> but I'm going to offer a framework to the audience that I, I think will do a reasonably good job at, at mitigating what we can. Um, First of all, ASRA, the American Society for Regional Anesthesia, maintains guidelines on this topic. They were last updated in 2017, um, and they have a comprehensive checklist of just best practices. Work with your anesthesia team. Make sure we follow best practices. <laughs> it's easier said than done, um, but there are guidelines out there that may not be being followed, um, at least consistently. They also have a checklist that they updated in 2020 that is this nice, simplified, color-coded flow sheet. Um, for responding to a last event. Have that handy. Um, when it comes to making this assessment on the front end and not exceeding these, you know, quote unquote, maximum doses, we would basically need a study for every drug for every type of injection. So every block is different. There are patient-specific factors, block-specific factors, and medication-specific factors that can all change from patient to patient to increase this risk. Um, so the numbers I'm going to provide here are come with an, an infinite list of, of cautions and caveats, <laughs> but the big numbers I remember are five, two, and three. So for lidocaine, five milligrams per kilo, bupivacaine, two milligrams per kilo, ropivacaine, three milligrams per kilo. Um, the process that the framework that I kind of personally have adopted, um, which again is based on my interpretation of the, the data that we do have, which is not very good, but uh, it's all we have. Um, as you know, first tally up all of the proposed drugs and doses um, that the patient is going to potentially be exposed to. So usually this comes in some type of form of the anesthesiologist wants to do a block with this much volume of ropivacaine and the surgeon wants to also instill some local anesthetic into the surgical site additionally. So you might have different drugs, different providers, different types of injections. We need to account for all of that. And then you want to calculate a kind of maximum dose for that patient using their ideal body weight is another important concept here. Then also kind of maybe take that factor down by 10 to 20% um, has been suggested in the literature for patients who are at an increased risk for last. And we have um, table number six and table number seven in the publication that really help simplify, you know, what these risk factors are that we're looking for, what these doses are. And uh, once we kind of, you know, look at all the drugs, look at the patient, calculate a max dose based on ideal body weight, adjust that downward if needed, then I can kind of take that back and reverse engineer. So, okay, the anesthesiologist is going to do this much volume of the block. Surgeon, you only have 10 cc's of LIDO 1% left um, to give that we are, we're going to agree that, that we feel comfortable. Um, with, for example, and if, if you need more volume or more spread, you can dilute that with normal saline, but do not give more than 10 cc's of light at 1%, you know, so it's, it, it can kind of be an exercise um, in, in math and also in kind of thinking in the gray and kind of weighing these different risk factors collaboratively, but that's kind of the, the framework and the assessment that is ideal, I think, on the front end to help prevent last, hopefully, and the doses that we have in table seven are, are our best interpretation of those maximums that we could offer um, with all those caveats, um, which also include, I failed to mention, if the, if the drug is given with or without epinephrine um, or other concomitant medications with that injection, 
Um, there's really just a multitude of factors that affect the safety profile of these drugs. So that's a, a place to start in a very uh, simplified, distinct way, as I could say. <laughs> I guess. So you're kind of talking about the the local anesthetics themselves and things to consider, but are there are there maybe patient specific factors that might um, increase your risk for that where like you said you know they mentioned by 10 to 20 percent for those at increased risk who might you define as at increased risk for developing last sure so some of the evidence-based risk factors that have come out um, that the guidelines do do a nice job summarizing as well uh, include extremes of age um, low muscle mass is a big one so malnourishment frailty cardiac disease and hepatic disease are big ones, but also any patient that ends up being hypoxic or acidotic <laughs> also falls in there. Uh, there's probably a, a, a dozen risk factors that are in the patient-related category that we could offer some of them more common than others, um, in addition to the medication-related risk factors and the administration-related risk factors. So it, it really is a lot to think about. So moving from kind of like risk factors and dose, Rachel, one of the questions that, that I've always had is um, when you think of last, one of the, the big symptoms is neurotoxicity. So when someone's in the OR, how, how is that neurotoxicity or how are some of these adverse side effects going to show themselves? Um, obviously, if their heart stops, that's an easy one to see the adverse effect there. But what other signs and symptoms um, might we see in are they going to look a little different in this, in the OR patient kind of under anesthesia? Yeah, that's a great question, Nick. You know, I think, you know, as the, as you mentioned, the initial signs of laugh, which most people feel are the initial signs commonly present themselves as that CNF um, type of, uh, type of uh, changes. So those perioral numbness, the lethargy, dizziness, agitation, confusion, um, and then ultimately going progressing to seizures. But really, what does that look like in the peri, in the intraoperative space where we have general anesthesia, deep sedation, things like that, that really, they really obscure those signs and symptoms. So um, honestly, in those particular cases, I think a lot of the times the first signs and symptoms that we would actually notice in the OR is that progression to the severe hemodynamic instability of our patient. Um, We've also had some patients as upon wake up, they actually upon emergence that they actually are seizing. So that's kind of a, a sign that perhaps it could be local anesthetic toxicity um, in, you know, in some of those patients at emergence. Um, but for the most part, a lot of the, a lot of those signs of the CNS toxicity are masked. We do within the perioperative space here, um, it was also recommended by, um, or at least almost recommended by ISMP in their most recent 2022 guidelines. We had a conversation about putting it in there, mandating it, but it's recommended that you monitor patients usually for at least 30 minutes after any type of block or any injection um, from the peripheral regional standpoint of things, just so that way you can monitor the patients for any of those signs and symptoms of the neurotoxicity prior to actually placing the patient. Um, under general anesthesia, but, um, but for the most part, um, if it certainly could be obscured in that setting. So treatment of 
that local anesthetic systemic toxicity is focused on the use of lipids, right? Intralipid therapy. So Sarah, what should we know about the use of IB lipids when treating last? What are, what are some, some things for us to consider and make sure we, we, uh, you know, rules or things that are followed when doing this? Sure. I mean, firstly, we don't, we don't know nearly as much as we would like to know. Again, no randomized controlled trial, no uh, high quality data to be had here. So Azra has done a good job in that most recent 2020 checklist I mentioned of really trying to simplify this and expedite therapy of intralipid in last emergencies so that we're not probably unnecessarily overthinking this. <laughs> so um, I, I only practice in adults. So this, these statements only apply to, to adults. I do not have pediatric experience to speak to, but pretty much any adult, the initial dose of intralipid is going to be a hundred ml. So it's recommended that we have the 20% lipid emulsion bag stocked everywhere that local anesthesia is done. Um, we can talk about more about the, the preparation um, if we want, but if, if you're in this situation, you really just need to remember, get to the bedside with the bag of intralipid and get, get it there quick. You're going to draw out, grab the biggest syringe you can and draw out, you know, or that's 50 cc's and then pass that to the anesthesiologist while you draw out the other 50 cc's and pass that. Um, certainly, if you have a very small adult patient, um, you might adjust that downward. 1.5 milligrams per kilo is technically the dose for adults who are under 70 kilos. Um, but even that's not going to get you a huge dose adjustment. And all of these doses are approximate. They all have a, a approximate designations in, in the guidelines uh, for this reason. So, Again, just in your head, if nothing else, if you are getting called to the bedside for a suspected last emergency, grab the 20% intralipid bag, draw out the biggest syringes you can, and pass them to the anesthesia provider to push over two to three minutes. Then you can spike the rest of that bag and give it another 250 cc's or so over the following 15 to 20 minutes is kind of the next step in the guidelines while you're also providing concurrent supportive care. And if the patient remains unstable or if they improve and then decompensate again, you can bolus them again. It's um, honestly, it has a, a relatively apparently pretty good safety profile in this setting. It's, it's really just about getting this to the patient as efficiently as possible. I also highly recommend this as an opportunity to just make a kit. We have a last kit that we keep in OR pharmacy satellites. And it has the, the dosing card, that colorful kind of simplified flowchart um, from ASRA's 2020 checklist. It has the bag of intralipid. It has the big syringes that we need, the tubing that we need. So just ev everything that you're going to need, which isn't a lot, but just having it in one place with the dosing um, guide that you can just run in there and have everything you need and a point of care guide is, is something I strongly recommend that, that pharmacists employ. So especially for our some of our maybe smaller institutions, right? That maybe they only have one or two bags of, of intralipids, right? So what do we do? What, what, what advice can we give if they're, if they run out of lipids? I mean, obviously you're, the next step would be then to try to move them right to another facility that may have them or whatnot, but what do we try to do in the interim? Is there anything we can do? Yeah, that's a sticky situation. Um, run down to anybody who's making TPNs and take their lipids. Um, I, yep. Basically it comes down to other supportive measures at that point. So is the neurotoxic, are they seizing? Is the neurotoxicity predominant? Benzos are going to be your preferred therapy. You're probably unlikely going to run out of benzos. Um, so keep those coming. 
things you don't want to reach for. You don't want to think that propofol is in any way a substitute for the lipid emulsion in this situation. You're, you're, it's highly recommended to avoid it or if you need to give it from a refractory seizure control perspective to give very low doses. Even though propofol is also in a lipid emulsion, um, obviously the negative inotropic and other um, cardiovascular depressive effects are going to be very dangerous in the poisoned heart in a last situation. So even though it's uh, the same milky looking substance, we don't want to reach for that. Um, Benzo is recommended for the seizures. If arrhythmias, hypotension, um, the cardiovascular effects predominate or are there in addition, uh, being aware that there are recommendations that kind of diverge from standard ACLS in this situation in light of kind of the, the pathophysiology and toxicology of of the poisoned heart in a, in a last emergency. So if you're getting to a situation where you're going to need epinephrine, which hopefully you can give this prior to, you know, complete arrest, but we're really thinking about micro anesthesia push doses of epinephrine, which is something that a, a lot of pharmacists may not be super familiar with. Um, but they literally recommend giving no more than one microgram per kilo of epinephrine. So, um, a lot of anesthesia providers are used to working with either a 10 microgram per ml or 6 ml uh, push dose concentration of epinephrine in the OR. So you want to make sure that we're thinking about that type of a concentration and dilution, not the code cart epi, um, if we can avoid it, and giving these very small incremental doses um, so that we don't dig ourselves into a bigger hole from a uh, supply-demand mismatch. Um, we want to be very careful to avoid, obviously, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers. Um, Basoprezin is also advised to avoid in the situation um, and just continue otherwise generally supportive measures as best we can. And your emphasis on on the the different doses and different formulations, right? I want to bring back what what Garang had said about when you go into the OR. Sometimes you're going and just looking at, okay, how was this made? How was this labeled? And making sure, right, that we're giving the right doses. So something I wanted to bring back there, Rachel. What did we miss in terms of of clinical pearls or other things to consider? Maybe a, a couple take home points, big picture when we're thinking of of last either recognition or treatment. Yeah, for me, I think, you know, as a perioperative clinical pharmacist, just making sure your space is prepared for one of these events. I think you can't educate and train enough and remind people, where do we go for our lipids? Where do we go for the checklist? Anytime you have these rare events, you need to set people up for success. So making sure that they have a nice, succinct, concise checklist, which Agra's, as Sarah mentioned, has a great checklist that's out there. Uh, with a better and more uh, streamlined dosing recommendations, all those recommendations of, that she just mentioned about the dosing of the benzos and the epi, all on that checklist. Um, and then also think about the things that could catch people up. So we recently had an event to where um, I think our intralipids were called fat emulsion in the pictures. So everyone's thinking intralipid and lipids and couldn't find it. And it's just little things like that that can really trip up um, the bedside clinicians as they're trying to respond to one of these events. So um, anytime you have events, debrief those events, figure out did our systems work the way we intended them to? What can we improve upon the next time that we have one of these events in our area? Rachel, I'll say that we had that exact same incident at our institution where 
fat emulsion is how lipids are kept in the pixis. And we, we had trouble that the nurses and, and some of the providers were having a hard time locating it. And we changed the, uh, the labeling of it in the pixis after that event. Yeah, so that's our uh, solution as well. Fantastic considerations with a disease state last that is becoming more and more common. So let's transition to discuss one of the most famous high-risk, low-utilization medications in all the hospital, dantrolene. Uh, thinking about dantrolene in our treatment for malignant hyperthermia. And when we're thinking of high-risk, low-utilization meds, right? Malignant hyperthermia is such a rare phenomenon, right? Some may have never seen it in their practice, right? But it's one of those you always got to be stay prepared because when... Uh, when it happens, right? It's a drop what you're doing emergency, right? So uh, Eric, what kind of goes into like the preparation and readiness with dantrolene, thinking specifically in that malignant hyperthermia treatment? Yeah, you know, Nick, you're absolutely correct that MH really is a rare event. And with the improvements and higher focus on screening patients before surgery, you know, we, we've seen over the last 10 to 15 years, the, the incidence of reported MH drop even further. So, so it is becoming almost once in a career, twice in a career type of event. Um, however, when you get that level of infrequency, um, it certainly creates the opportunities for potential unfamiliarity and, and uh, loss in terms of best practices from both providers, pharmacists, and an enterprise. Um, and, and we also know from studies that you know, if there is a delayed treatment for MH, there is an increased worsening or um, uh, a worsening in terms of outcomes for the patient. So in many ways, preparation and, and time is of the essence. Uh, from a pharmacy standpoint, you know, I, I think that at a bare minimum, pharmacists can be prepared for these events by being prepared to retrieve the dantrolene as well as provide dosing reconstitution and administration guidance for providers in, in that space. You know, as pharmacists, though, um, we, we really take planning and preparation to uh, a further level. And so going beyond that, that basic drug supply or medication procurement um, step, I, I think is a great opportunity for pharmacists to really uh, elevate the practice, both of uh, providers and, and for the institution. So becoming involved in how your institution um, prepares for a malignant hyperthermia event. Um, do they do frequent drills and simulations? Um, and if so, making sure that uh, a pharmacist is present both for those simulations, but then also in, in the real life things. So um, we're, we're accustomed to being relied upon for being in that space. Um, a lot of times, pharmacists can also play a significant role in building or crafting these malignant hyperthermia or MH carts. Uh, this is something that you'll see a lot of institutions. It's sort of a consolidated collection of many of the therapies that are going to go into that treatment response. And um, this might take, from a pharmacy standpoint, uh, advocating to pharmacy and therapeutics committees, uh, discussing various drug formulations. Um, and, and understanding quantities that need to be available for providers for the, the treatment of an MH type of scenario. Um, and then going beyond that, you know, I think it's significant value to, for pharmacists to educate 
other uh, provider, other pharmacy providers in that space. So um, at our institution, our pharmacy residents are part of the MH response team. If, if they were to be called to an MH thing, uh, event, uh, they would, we, we provide them training, orientation, um, and walk them through the steps of both reconstituting uh, dantrolene um, as well as how to appropriately navigate the perioperative space. And, you know, from a planning and preparation standpoint, I think Rachel hit it absolutely correctly. You, you really can't overdrill or overprepare for these type of events because there's a good chance that last time your institution experienced MH, all those providers have moved on, retired, um, or, or aren't present. So for a lot of individuals, it will be their first time. And so as a pharmacist, we, we really have the opportunity to know the ins and outs of both the medication, but as well as the treatment pathways for that, that suspected MHK. You mentioned sometimes the biggest challenge is just knowing where the cart is and where to go get it, right? Sometimes. So the training piece of, cause it's very rarely is this going to happen Wednesday at noon, right? It's going to happen when you're, when you have the least amount of people, right? And, and when chaos can happen. So, um, Gurung, let's go into a little bit about our dantrolene dosing and kind of clinical pearls as it relates to like in the administration and how we give it in this scenario. Yeah, the um, dosing is fairly, there's actually recommendations for um, preoperative kind of management, um, even days before the surgery, uh, depending on the protocol. Um, but the intraoperative one, um, generally, the loading dose uh, that's given over that first period of, you know, 10 minutes or so is about two and a half milligram per kilogram. And then uh, thereafter, one milligram per kilogram. Uh, your standard vials, um, if you're at, you know, for the listeners, if you're at an institution where you have, um, you know, the emulsion, um, you know, really fancy Rhinodex, I'm jealous. Very jealous. Um, but for many, yeah, for many of the hospitals, um, they're good old 20 milligram vials. Um, that have to be reconstituted one at a time uh, with sterile water. So, I, you know, it's actually pretty interesting. I always um, teach it as if if you remember the first time you, well, at least for me, um, at that time, amiodarone was an ampules. And you had to bust open the ampule, hope you didn't, you know, cut your thumb or your finger, get the filter needle, um, draw it up. But I remember doing it um, the first couple of times. And it was just foam and soap and stuff everywhere. And it was during a code and it was a little embarrassing. And um, I hadn't had an opportunity to draw it up as a resident because we didn't have, we had the vials as a resident, but um, at the hospital, we had these ampules and when we finally went to vials. I'm like, okay, I remember the first few times this happened. It's a little bit similar um, with dantrolene after it gets reconstituted, there's some mannitol in there, but it, it's, I think, a great opportunity uh, if you have an experiential educate, whether it's a, a resident or a pharmacy student. Um, actually, and if you don't, a pharmacy technician, to be honest, take them with you um, because you're going to need all the help you can get. And you really just line up the vials because you're going to need at least 10 to 15 of those. Um, and you start diluting them one at a time and drawing them up um, as quick as you can. So the key is fast, but be patient. Um, kind of, I, I kind of use it as with amiodarone. Don't, uh, don't try to do too much too quick. 
um, because uh, either the plunger will get messed, something will get messed up. You got foam coming out of the tip of the syringe. It's all it's it's kind of a mess all over the place. But um, after you uh, get that piece accomplished, then it's really drawing up your doses and your vials, kind of one at a time. Um, and I think Sarah hit on it earlier. After you get what we usually typically do is you get fifty or so milligrams, or you know you, you get a certain dose, and then all of a sudden, uh, typically I'll use sixty or um, you know, 120, you know, after I get about three or four vials or 80, you'll hand over that dose. Um, and then you go ahead and start drawing up more until you hit kind of that two and a half milligram approximately, uh, per kilo dose. And then you'll have to obviously see if you get a response. And if you do, then obviously you're going to give more. Um, I think recognition is a really big thing. Uh, you know, I think everybody kind of mentioned it. It's, uh, I'll, you know, I think in my career, maybe four or five times. Um, over 20 years, so not very often, um, but it's recognition. So then, you know, as soon as you start hearing things when you go in the room, um, like the theme everybody's hearing, it's like thinking of all the things that um, we just kind of went through and mentioned. But yeah, that that's how I would summarize it. Yeah, I until we were preparing for this talk, I didn't even know that non that there were vials other than the 20 milligrams. So when I heard that, I got instantly jealous of those institutions. Um, So Grong did a really good job of painting the picture of what it's like. Eric, walk us through. I'm curious for those who have never made it right from from you get the call or you get the page to kind of the end. Give us a little bit of a play-by-play of what it's like acutely preparing dantrolene. Um, because like Gurang mentioned, and I experienced this the first time too, it's the, the first time you do it, I wouldn't say I, it was pretty or it was, uh, it was my best work as a, as a bedside pharmacist. Yeah, it, it really is night and day, whether depending on what type of formulation of dantrolene you have. Um, our institution uses actually, or we have historically used both um, Ryanodex, which is 250 milligrams per 5 ml, and then uh, the Ravanto or Dantrum, which is 20 milligrams per 60 uh, ml. And just sort of painting a picture there, if you're looking at a 90 kilogram individual, that, that 2.5 mg per kg dose is going to be 225 milligrams of Dantrum. So, um, if you have Ryanodex, that's one vial, and five cc's of sterile water goes into it. Um, it's this, it goes into solution extremely quickly, beautiful orange color, ready to hand it over, save the day. If you have uh, Dantrum <laughs> or Ravanto, your day got a little bit longer. Uh, you know, that 225 milligrams, it's going to take you 12 vials to get that with the 20 milligrams per 60 cc's. Um, uh, file formulation. Furthermore, that's almost 750 milliliters of volume that you're reconstituting of, of sterile water. So to, to say that you need one individual is, is probably pretty ambitious. Um, when, when we've had it in the past, you know, there, there are a line of individuals of, of nurses uh, reconstituting all those vials. And, and as Grong mentioned, that's just for the first dose. You're obviously hoping for changes in heart rate and tidal CO2, seeing dissipation of, of the sign, classic signs of MH, but understanding that you are going to be giving subsequent doses um, if you're not seeing resolution of those symptoms. And so um, needing to stock addition or needing to acquire additional options. Um, MHOS, 
which uh, is a national resource uh, hotline that is dedicated to the treatment of malignant hyperthermia. It's, it's a great resource and similar to um, what Sarah and Rachel were talking about in terms of LAST. They, they very distinctly provide uh, uh, reference documents uh, at their website in terms of what you should have both in your MH cart as well as if you are experiencing a um, MH crisis at this time, click here and they would additionally provide guidance for steps uh, of how to approach that, um, that crisis. In terms of what they recommend from a basic um, stocking of, of your MH cart, um, they recommend either three vials of Ryanodex or 36 vials of Robonto in order to be able to effectively treat that MH crisis. Um, so definitely a large footprint, and, and that goes along the lines in terms of formulary advocates by the clinical pharmacist for how your institution decides to approach MH as a response. So very big difference between those, those two different formulations. Um, we're fortunate now that we've recently converted all over to Ryanodex. So I um, hate to say you're looking forward to an MH crisis, but I... I feel much more uh, uh, well-equipped to address one if one does arrive. And, and that's the important of the kit is when you're reconstituting these, it, you're not going to have enough sterile water vials or big 50 to 60 cc syringes around. Your life is going to be terrible if you're trying to do this with 10 cc syringes. So preparation is key for all that. And you're exactly right. When you bring the cart around, everyone's heard about it. So it's like everyone kind of goes around if there are people. So you mentioned nurses want to help, right? It's an all hands on deck scenario. So I thought that was a, a great play by play. Your day just got a little longer. That's the nicest way you could put it. You're absolutely right. We open part one with a roundtable discussion, um, and part two will close with one. Um, so all four panelists join me to give some reflections of the past and hopes for the future within perioperative clinical pharmacy. We'll kind of do the re reverse alphabetical by first name. Gosh, that's a, that's a tongue twister. Um, but kind of starting with Sarah, what's a piece of advice you wish someone would have told you as you started your career in the perioperative space, kind of knowing that this is probably one of the areas that, that growth will be occurring um, as we look to kind of um, create positions in, in uh, hospitals, institutions, et cetera. Yes. I appreciate this question, Nick. So if, if I was guiding somebody who was just getting started in the space today, I would first offer some things that just straight up weren't, didn't exist at the time that I was, I was getting started. And so knowing your resources and, and knowing your, your people, your professional home. And what I would offer on that front is the ACCP perioperative care PRN or practice and research network um, of whom all of our group today has been very active in and our opinion paper on perioperative clinical pharmacy practice. We really made this as a guidance document to help provide that map and that outline of what we can do in this space, how to demonstrate value, get resources, what workflows can look like, what priorities and training looks like, precepting. We really cover all that and really try to, you know, support that, provide that guide to people who are just starting out. When it comes to me personally, if I could go back, you know, to, to 2011, 2012, when I was first getting involved in the space, um, and certainly in 2013 when we were starting our first position, it would have been to um, spend more time at the desk. 
spend more time hanging out at the, the main OR front desk, uh, connecting with people, listening, really connecting with the, the entire team um, to help build that trust. I, I think as pharmacists, we're really good at, you know, bringing the evidence, bringing the data, uh, you know, making evidence-based interventions. And, you know, if, certainly if you're ED-minded like I was at the time, maybe you're good at, you know, helping expedite medications and, you know, making, helping the team make good decisions in high-risk situations. And, and that's all great. But all that knowledge and skills get rendered useless when people just don't know or trust you. And I have a great story I wanted to end on on that front um, that happened um, pretty recently, actually. So um, I got dispatched into an OR by um, the nurse anesthetist that called me. And this was, you know, we're probably two years into a great initiative where we've been working on increasing use of cefazolin in penicillin allergic patients um, based on, you know, current, current evidence and the value of delabeling penicillin allergies and so on that as pharmacists we all know and love. So... This patient had been ordered cefazolin. They had a penicillin allergy. We had evaluated it. The nursing, you know, staff prepared it. The anesthesiology provider was about to give it. But the surgeon was like, wait, they're allergic to penicillins. And the nurse anesthetist was like, well, that's, you know, the risk is very low. And, you know, pharmacy recommends this. And the surgeon was like, put me on the phone with them. And so the, the nurse anesthetist, you know, calls me and she's like, Sarah, you know, Dr. Jones is really uncomfortable with it. And she, she kind of points both Sarah at the surgeon and the surgeon goes, so what are the odds that my patient dies of anaphylaxis on the table today? And I'm like, the cross-reactivity is way less than 1%, sir, and it is the best drug at preventing infection in your patient. I do recommend it, and I have the evidence and our institutional protocols to back that up if you'd like to discuss further. And he's like, hmm, and who is this again? And I was like, this, this is Sarah with pharmacy. And he's like, oh, Sarah, I know you. I trust you. Okay, let's do it. So, I mean, it just, it just goes to show you that you can have the right answer, but the right answer isn't going to ultimately be the right answer if um, you don't have a relationship to, to stand upon sometimes first, especially in a, you know, a potentially high risk or fast paced emergency situation. So never uh, underestimate the value of building those relationships alongside your, your clinical interventions and expertise. What a great for the plug for the PRNs. Love the PRN, Critical Care PRN sponsors this. And uh, Sarah, I just got to go on record. That was a great surgeon voice. That was a great impression. If if you're looking for a second career, I think you got it. Um, really, really great <laughs> advice. I love that story. Um, Rachel, what about you? Yeah, great story, uh, Sarah. And I actually will also plug uh, the PRN, the perioperative PRN, because if I were to go back and um, wish I would have done something differently, had it been available, would then find a perioperative pharmacist mentor. So I feel like we're still very new within the space, but at the same time, there's a lot more perioperative pharmacist mentors out there that are able to um, be, um, you know, to be that mentor and that guide to what would we have done differently, you know, building relationships. Absolutely, absolutely agree with Sarah. Those relationships and spending time in the space, understanding because the, the workflow in the space works completely different than the inpatient um, setting and you have to understand that to be the best advocate for the people who you are servicing and supporting within the perioperative space. So I think finding a mentor is absolutely one of my um, advice, one, one of the pieces of advice that I would uh, provide. And then also I'm a little bit jealous of there as well as when the workload became so great for me, I just buckled down and worked harder. Um, 
and I didn't really get the guidance to to expand. I mean, I in a way, you know, it was kind of out there, but the how to how to get the FTEs, as Guang even mentioned at the very beginning, sometimes that's difficult to get the FTEs into to to, uh, to petition that this is needed in this space. So I just um, buckled down and um, and tried to work harder, tried to feel like, oh, I need to be more efficient. I need to be more resilient. Always like putting it off on myself is why I was struggling in this space. But really, there's just there's so much opportunity to to address and to improve and to help um, that the workload is so great. So really, I, I think if I could go back to I would expand and work on expanding my team a lot sooner than what I have. Mentorship is such great advice, right? Learning from other people's challenges or, or things that they had to overcome, mistakes they made or things would have done differently. I think that's, not only in this space, just in general, I think that's, that's great advice. Um, Garong, what about your perspective? Um, yeah, just to build on um, what Sarah and, and Rachel went through, I, I think um, kind of turning the clock um, back quite a bit, uh, it would have been first, learn everyone's role before you try to do anything, um, go spend a day with a pre-op nurse, go spend a day with a PACU nurse, go spend a day with the nurse in the OR, go spend a day with the anesthesiologist, go spend a day with the surgical resident and, um, kind of learn what they do. And I I think they, they honed in on it. They both did. And I know, um, Eric uh, has, has mentioned this as well, build a relationship, build trust. Um, you're going to need their help to do anything. So before you do anything or think about doing anything, um, get to know who you're working with. Um, and I wish I would have uh, done that more earlier. Uh, align what you want to do with what they're working on. Uh, surprise, surprise, because they're going to support it. Um, they're more likely to going to support whatever you want to do, whether it's a formulary. Um, you're attacking something in the formulary in terms of cost or something has to do with quality or all the above. Um, be humble. You don't think you know as, what you might, as much as you might think you know. Um, you really don't. And so that kind of transitions into listen. Just listen as much as you can. Ask questions. Um, it's probably one of the most underrated tools on that leadership pathway or road. And um, listen as much as you can. Um, you'll learn a lot more. And, you know, obviously you're going to research things and look into things and guidelines, but just listen. I love that. I I kind of, I heard be humble and it's kind of like be humble or you will be humbled in that scenario. Right. So I think that's, that's really good advice. Um, And Eric kind of close us out with um, if you, you know, advice that you wish someone would have told you as you started um, kind of your role in the perioperative space. Yeah, I I definitely echo everything that my colleagues have said, but perhaps provide a little bit more harder edge of of advice or recommendation. And and that is, if you are in that space and you see value and you're hearing these things that we're doing and and you see that your institution would benefit from that, don't let people tell you that you you as a pharmacist don't belong in that space or Clinical pharmacy doesn't have a role in, in that in that area. I can't tell you how many times in my early career I had to pep talk myself to say, what you found here is real. What you're doing has value. It doesn't matter that, you know, you are not 
getting the positive feedback from department heads that, that perhaps you would in another space. Um, there is definitely value, and this is where clinical pharmacy, I think, can provide tremendous benefit. What great advice. Um, I think kind of the appropriate, the, the perfect way to end this would be, now how do each of you see the role of perioperative pharmacy services kind of changing in kind of this five to 10 years? Because, you know, from, you know, what I'm gathering from a lot of you, right, is that it's already changed in five to 10 years from when a lot of you have been practiced. So how do we, what do you all envision kind of seeing where the future of this is? So uh, Eric, let's have you bat lead off for this final question here. Thanks so much. Um, yeah, I think I'm very interested to hear what my colleagues have to say. We specifically didn't share with each other about this, but um, you know, I, I think that the healthcare's alignment with value-based care um, and some of the metrics that Garong talked about, I, I think that there is going to be a very easy and obvious role for perioperative pharmacists for process improvement and um, decreasing adverse surgical outcomes that I, I think one arm of clinical pharmacy in that space will be very much ingrained with all the other healthcare leadership individuals that are spent, that are focused so intently on making sure that, that patients have good outcomes and that the hospital uh, delivers to its full potential. Garang, what about your perspective? Yeah, in addition, I think um, to the and like a number of quality and um, safety metrics, which are on report cards and um, things that are public knowledge. You know, one of the other things that I, I think will really kind of change is uh, the scope. Um, so I call it being comfortable with things that are uncomfortable. Um, so get comfortable with them. So one of those for me was pediatrics. Um, expand what you're doing and what you're working on. It'll make you more valuable. It's going to make our group more valuable. Um, it's not easy, but it wasn't intended to be easy, but it's simple, um, but it's not easy. And the other piece of it is, um, and I know this is kind of a roller coaster right now with experiential education around the country, um, whether it's residency programs, pharmacy colleges, um, even retention of, you know, faculty and uh, pharmacists on site. And one of the things I, you know, wanted to mention is that uh, look for opportunity. And I think what we can do is look for opportunity within your teams of people looking for more. Um, I think the periop area is unique in there is so much like everybody mentioned. So maybe somebody really has a niche in transitions of care. Well, you can find something for them. Um, maybe they're on the medicine side or the ICU side, but they don't work immediately in, in the perioperative space, for example. Um, try to find opportunity within the perioperative space for those that aren't in it directly. Um, I think that really helps with support, but it really helps expand the knowledge base. Rachel, what about you? So I think in five to 10 years, I'm really hoping that we can expand the perioperative landscape to where there will be more pharmacists within and supporting the entire surgical continuum. So there's a lot of healthcare institutions that have preoperative assessment clinics. So we're really, as we're trying to improve the quality of our patients' outcomes, we're really realizing that pre-optimization 
um, plays a huge role in how the patients actually um, respond throughout their surgical recovery. And so I think, you know, from that standpoint, of, uh, there's so many things that a pharmacist has the skill set to do in the optimization realm of care. So I really foresee um, integrating a pharmacist in that space. We can also, I think, solve so many issues as it relates to the medication, um, essentially history collection and pretty much reconciliation through all the transitions of care throughout the phases and that discharge, um, teaching on multimodal analgesia. There's just so much opportunity that I think a pharmacist really has the most appropriate skill set to actually um, improve our patient care. So I'm excited that I'm hopeful that there's going to be opportunity for us to show our value in those five to 10 years as it relates to improving the quality of our patient outcomes. So Sarah, close us out and where you think the role of perioperative pharmacy services could be changing in that five to 10 year kind of future timeframe. Overall, I think that perioperative clinical pharmacy is where ED clinical pharmacy was 10 years ago. And I, I think it's going to follow the same trajectory. I think it's going to continue to explode. We're going to continue to recognize all these great roles across this entire continuum, of my, as my colleagues have highlighted. And I think along with that, I'm really hoping that, you know, as a profession, we can improve our training in this front. Um, I'm hopeful that there will be more regular rotations for APIs for PGY1 pharmacy residents that eventually we will have a PGY2 in perioperative clinical pharmacy, a board certification in perioperative um, because it's, it's such an expansive area that's tangential to many of our existing trainings and board certifications, but nothing totally captures it right now. And so I, I really think we're this burgeoning uh, specialty within our profession that's going to continue to grow. And I'm, I'm hoping to see our, our learners and our training expand in this area to support that growth. So really appreciate you again, giving us this platform to have this conversation, Nick. It's, it's been really awesome to, to come together and describe our different perspectives and talk with you about this exciting area. So thanks again for having us. No, thank you, Sarah Eric, Rachel, and Garong. Um, we've all learned a lot from both your knowledge bases and experience. Uh, very, very grateful. So, no, thank you. Thank you all so much. Um, be sure to listen to both parts of this awesome series on perioperative emergencies and let the guests and I know what you thought. Uh, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at pharmacy to dose, TO to dose, or via email pharmacy to dose at gmail.com a reference list with the articles we discussed today and more including the nomination form for the 2023 awards that is in the podcast episode description as well as the website pharmacy to and until next time i'm nick peters and this is pharmacy to dose the critical care podcast QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com A-P-P-S. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. 
The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. 